Wow, thank you, Jason. Delighted to be here with you all. How are you this morning? I want to introduce my lovely wife, and we're just about, I guess I'm in the South, so I can say fixing, can't I? We're fixing to uh, celebrate our 30th uh, year anniversary, and so would you, marry, would, you, would you marry me? Would you stand up? Would you stand up? Would you give her a wonderful hand? Renee do. <clears throat> and so we're at 30 years. I married her when she was 12 years old, so you guys all know that. Um, but we have four wonderful children. They're doing real well. They're in ministry, and we're just so delighted and excited to be here with you. And we have the privilege of being in New Zealand for 12 years and Brisbane, Australia for two years. And we had the real delight to work with Jason and Amy as they were pioneering our church in Sydney, Australia. And we are just so delighted with the great job they've done uh, in, uh, in helping fulfill the Great Commission. And really excited to be here with you. I, uh, I had the privilege of talking with your pastor, Andy King, and his lovely wife. And they were giving me all the travelogue and where they've been. And I thought, golly, I, I can't believe this guy because we cross paths all over from Nashville to California. And so I'm hearing his story, and I, I just felt a real tremendous uh, kindred and, and light spirit. And, and we said, I said, I'd love to come up and see what you're doing and help out if I could. He said, sure. So here we are, and we're delighted to be here with you. And we know that God is doing great things, not just in uh, Orlando where we live, but he's actually doing great things all across the world. And so the wonderful thing is we get to be a part of what he's doing right here in metro Atlanta. Amen? And so make no mistakes of it. You're not here by chance. You may think you chose to come here. You may think that, you know, you, you kind of slotted out your life to be the way it is. But can I tell you something? There's a providential God that orchestrates and weaves together our life in such a beautiful tapestry that we're here for such a time as this. So I want you guys to know something is that there is, a, there is a, a providential destiny on each and every one of our lives. And we don't need to downplay it. In fact, you didn't choose God. He chose you. You know, he knows everything about you, and he still chose you. Amen. That's why you should worship him. <gasps> he knows everything, and he says that I'll take you. And, you know, that's why, that's why we can raise our hands and say, thank you, God, because I don't deserve what you gave me. And so I know you guys have been doing a series on Jesus changes everything. Everything not only changes your heart, but, but once he does change our hearts, then he changes our way in which we do life, the application of life, if you would. And that's what happened to me some, uh, gosh, 30, 35, oh, no, excuse me, almost 39 years ago on a university campus, God apprehended my life and changed me. And it wasn't just that I knew I was going to heaven. It was I knew that I had a specific and distinct purpose for the reason he saved me, and it was to impact people with the truth. It was to tell people that not only did Jesus change me, but he can change you as well. And from that point on, as a young 23-year-old buck who didn't know anything, all I understood is that if, God's on, if God is for me, and if he's called me, then there is great and mighty exploits he has for me. And one of my favorite scriptures is, those who know their God will be mighty and do exploits. Now, let me tell you something. I grew up in a little small town in Aiken, South Carolina, 
And my idea of going to see the world was coming to Six Flags over Atlanta, you know, or Myrtle Beach. I mean, that was about as big as my vision was. Can you relate to me? And I had no idea that I would travel around the world. I had no idea that I would leave the United States. I had no idea. But the God we serve really changes not only the smallest of our thinking, but the trajectory of our destiny if we'll believe him and trust him. Amen. And so we're here today because not only did Jesus change us and do we get to go to heaven, but he has a specific purpose or what I call mission for you. He has a mission for me. And when Christianity starts to really come alive is when you and I get on mission. We become missional. Say that with me. Becoming missional. Say that. God doesn't want you to just get saved and go to heaven one day. That's wonderful. But can I tell you something? There's a lot of work to be done between now and when you go off to heaven. And God wants to use you and I to be, to be influencers, to be systematically in this world, changing it, being salt and light, and engaging the culture. Turn with me, if you would, to your Bibles. Most of you have electronic Bibles. That's okay. iPads, that's, go that's good. Just don't check your email while we're doing this. Ephesians chapter 4, very familiar scripture. Beginning in verse 11. It says, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So they could woo and wow and serve the body of Christ to make everyone feel comfortable. That's the way it should read in 2019 in Atlanta, Georgia, in the south. <laughs> now, what does it say? He gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ to a mature man. So can I tell you something? God saved you, and he saved me, not just so we can enjoy the pleasure of being born again and having a relationship with the God of the universe, but he saved us for a purpose. He saved you and I for a mission. Amen. I want you to nudge the person next to you and say, I think he's preaching to you. Say, no, he's probably preaching to you. So we understand that God is a missional God, that God wants to put you and I on mission. He wants to get us out, out of our seats, into the game, into action. Another scripture in 1 uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 11, Pastor, Pastor Andy quoted it this morning, that we are a chosen race, a peculiar people. You already knew that, but we are a peculiar people that God has selected to be his own people that we might proclaim, say it, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, he didn't save you so you could revel in the fact that you're going to heaven and you're going to fly away, you know. Let me tell you what, you're not going to fly. Take your wings off, sweetheart. You're not leaving yet. When I, I was raised in a Baptist church, how many Baptists we got in here? God bless the Baptists. Amen. I was raised in a Baptist church, and we would sing that old song. You may have, you can Google it if you've never heard it. It's called I'll Fly Away. In the morning, one bright morning, when this life is o'er, I'll fly away. Oh, glory. And, you know, we sang it. Everyone got happy. Well, I get to fly away. I get to leave this quagmire called earth. No more credit card debt. No more fat, ugly husband. I get to fly away, God. I want to leave the planet. What does God say? Take your wings off. The job's not done. That I've saved you 
I've saved you that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And once we understand that and realize that I've got to get off my derriere and start being a Christian, not just believing in Christianity, because there's an application to my life. Can I tell you something, ladies and gentlemen? Good preaching doesn't change you. You get excited and you, you can say, I enjoyed it, but good preaching doesn't change you. What changes you is when you take the essence of the truth that's preached to you and you apply it to your life, then there comes a transformation and an application. Information without application leads to nothing, but in, information with application leads to transformation. So if you'll take the truth of God's word and if you'll apply it to your life, what you guys have been hearing this last month on Jesus Changes Everything, if you and I will apply it to our lives, we can not only change our family, we can change this whole community, amen? That's what God is after. An atheist once said, mocking Christianity, he said, how much do you have to hate someone to believe that eternal life is possible and never tell them about it? How much do you have to really despise someone to know this thing called eternity is real, yet you don't bother to tell them about it? We say, oh, we love everybody. And I like the South. I grew up here. If you notice, everything's fine in the South. Talk to people, how you doing? Fine. Mama's fine. Daddy's fine. Dog's fine. They could be going through a divorce, lost their job. Your kid's strung out on a drug. How you doing? Fine, fine. Everything's fine. It's not fine. Life is not fine. We can put on a, vene a veneer in this external pretense, but things are not fine. In Kennesaw, Georgia, things are not fine in Atlanta, Georgia. Things are not fine in Orlando. Can I tell you what? I live in Orlando, and we're 45 minutes from Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. Can I tell you, it ain't the happiest place on earth. I've been there. It ain't. Now, Disney Corporation thinks it's pretty good because that's the only place you have to pay $32 for a Coke and a hot dog. So they think it's really, really happy because they're, they're scraping in the capital. Amen. So they want you to come. But it isn't the happiest place on earth. I remember one time when I went to Hawaii. Pastor Jason, I was there. Our daughter played basketball for University of Hawaii. And I was there. And we were at the Hawaii, uh, uh, Hilton Hawaii, Hawaiian Village, and we're at Waikiki Beach, and I'm talking to a guy. And I said, how are you doing? He goes, I'm miserable. I said, you're here in paradise? He goes, yeah, oh, yeah. And he said, where are you from? And at the time, I lived in Auckland, New Zealand. And he said, uh, wow, Auckland, New Zealand, I'd love to go there. Lord of the Rings, Middle Earth. You know, like there's orcs and elves walking around downtown. Can I have your autograph, you know? And I'm thinking, look, I said, he said, I would love to go there. I would be happy if I was there. I said, you got one problem. When you get on the plane to go to Auckland, New Zealand, you have to take you with you. And if you're, not, if you're miserable here in paradise, it won't be two or three weeks before you're miserable in Middle Earth. There's something in the heart of people, we're going to talk more about that, where we understand. Go to the next slide, if you would, please. where we're going to talk about the empty self, this issue where people are trying to fulfill everything in their heart 
yet they're still empty. They're still vying for something that's supposed to be complete them. Christians are not experiencing spiritual maturity because they are victims of something called the empty self, the empty self. And this was discovered by a guy named J.P. Moreland out in California. He calls it the, the empty self syndrome. This lack of maturity leaves believers from developing the necessary tools to impact their culture for God or his kingdom or to experience what the Bible calls the mind of Christ. The purpose of the Christian life is to bring honor and glory to God. You missed a good chance to say amen. The purpose of the Christian life is to bring honor and glory to God. This involves finding one's vocation, pursuing it for the good of both others, believers and non-believers, while in the process being changed to a more Christ-like person. I think he's on to something here. Doing this well involves developing your intellect, your moral virtues over a long period of time and delaying the constant desire for immediate, instant gratification. He said this culture, the millennials and Generation I, they are so into this instant gratification that they're looking for the next adrenaline rush. Can I tell you something? We are the most connected culture in human history, yet social scientists tell us that suicide is rampant among young people, that feelings of loneliness and isolation is, is overwhelming the culture. How could we have all this connectivity, all this being plugged in, and people are taking their lives, people are depressed, and lonely, there's more antidepressant drugs being given out to young people under the age of 30 because we're the most connected people, yet in a crowd of people or in thousands of people that are on your Facebook or your Instagram, you're still lonely. Can I tell you something? Facebook isn't really real. They, have you noticed that, well, I've got 500 friends on Facebook. You know how you can find out who your real friends are? Text them or, or put a post on there saying, I'm moving tomorrow. Please show up and help tomorrow at 10 o'clock. You will, will, you will find out who your friends are. You'll go from 500 to 2, maybe. And that's your mother and grandmother, you know, that shows up to help you. And, and people on Facebook, they're not really, they don't look that way in real life. Have you noticed, you know, people on Facebook, they've got that glamour shot and, you know, looking all real nice and, you know, photoshopped and everything. And have you ever seen them in real life? You're walking, ugh. You, golly, that's. They're not really real. And we live in this kind of culture that, that promises you if you, will, if you will feed self, if you'll satisfy this thing called self, this selfism, this, this, this empty self, if you'll keep filling this reservoir, one day you will be happy. One day you'll be successful. One day you'll find this thing called peace. There was a French philosopher. This is the only thing he said that's really worth quoting. He said, before you set your life on e the pursuit of any one thing, first examine the lives of those who possess that thing. Before you think making a million dollars will make you happy, go interview a few millionaires. Before you think getting a brand new vehicle will really fill that void in your heart, go interview some people who are driving 
a $60,000 vehicle and paying $1,800 a month for the next 20 years of their life to drive it. And you young people, don't be fooled by the glamour and the glitz and, and, and all that stuff. You know that red convertible, convertible that, that Mookie's driving? It goes back to Avis on Monday. It, does, it doesn't really belong to him. But we live in a culture of image. We were talking last night over dinner just how image means so much and content is just thrown by the wayside. This, this culture we live in, this empty self-culture, have you noticed the things that you had to have on Black Friday? How many remember Black Friday? <laughs> Come on, ladies. There's a lot of ladies. They didn't raise their, you know, after Thanksgiving, you know, the shopping day, Black, that Black Friday. Okay. And you, had, you were up at 5 a.m. going shopping and everything. All the things you bought and came back and were so thrilled about, a year later, they served nothing as but fodder for the next garage sale. You notice that. The things and happenings can't make you happy. So this thing called the empty self, this thing called the empty self, it's symptomized by four characteristics. One is called infantilism. If you could put that up, please. Yeah, here we are. Infantilism. What's, what is infantilism? That is when people act like a six-month-old baby. Now, how many old babies are really cute and adorable? Okay, you guys don't ever, have you ever seen a baby? Okay. <laughs> Some of you are undecided, you know. <laughs> uh, they're really cute and adorable, and, you know, and when, when they get in the floor and they, they scream because they want milk or they want mommy or they want something, it's really kind of cute. But how many know when a 22-year-old man does it, it isn't very cute anymore? That you have to have it now, and you scream, and you, you, you holler to get those things you want. He said this thing called the empty self is marked by one symptom called infantilism. We have to have it, and we have to have it immediately, and we'll throw up a fit if we don't get it. Number two, this thing called narcissism. Now, narcissism, or narcissus, was in Greek mythology he was a handsome warrior going off to battle, and he stopped by a pool to get a drink of water and saw his reflection in the pool and fell in love with himself and never went anywhere because he stayed there eternally looking at his pool. Narcissism. Narcissism. How many of us are constantly on that iPhone? How many of us are looking at who's responding or following us? How many people are just... Next time you take a selfie or someone takes a selfie with you in there, the first person you try to find is you. We're all wired this way. One psychologist out in Arizona, I just talked to her. She graduated magna cum laude from her class, and she, she came up with this, this thing called the spotlight syndrome. When people come into the room, they feel like the spotlight's on them. Like when you came into church today, she said, everyone has a tendency to think that everyone's going to turn around and go, oh, She's here. He's here. And we all have it, you know? You know? In fact, they did a survey. They found out that, that uh, people, their behavior changes drastically when they're in public. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed your, your behavior changes when you're in public? I mean, if we had video cameras in your homes, we could blackmail every one of you from this morning. You got out of bed. You were scratching places we can't talk about, making biological sounds we don't want to talk about. 
and you know, and looking in the mirror. How many looked in the mirror this morning before you got got to church? Okay, the rest of you should have. You look in the mirror, and you think, God, I got to change. You know what? You had a fight with your husband, or you're mad, or you're angry about something, and then the moment you walk in the door, Hallelujah, praise God, I'm here to worship Him. You know, everything changed. That's the spotlight syndrome. We all deal with it. We all have to somehow deal with that. Narcissism. Number three, the sensate culture. Sensate, or we got the English word sensuality from that. It just feels right. It feels right. But I really feel this. I really, I really prefer this, and it makes me feel good when I think about that. I talk to people who say they're born-again Christians, and I, I say, are there any other ways to go to heaven besides Jesus? They said, yeah, I think so. It just feels wrong to say Jesus is exclusively the only way. Sweetheart, I can, can I tell you something? If you live by your feelings, you're in big trouble. Objective reality cares not about what you feel. But our sin-sake culture does. We want you to feel a certain way. We want you to, to have your preference. You deserve a break today. It counts what you feel and what you think. That's the sensate culture we're dealing with. And number four, passivity. If I don't get what I want, I'm just going to isolate and be passive because, after all, it's all about me. Years ago, we sang a song in New Zealand. I think it was by Israel Holton. So I'm not. And it's, it was talking about Jesus as a worship song. You could probably help me with it. And it's, it's all about you. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And we'd sing the refrain, and people would love it. We had a little boy, the elder in our church, Dr. Adam Clausen's little boy. He was Nathaniel. He was probably five or six years old. And he thought everyone was singing to him. He was at home, and he was singing, It's all about me. It's all about me, Jesus. Well, I love this church. It's all about me. Meet my needs. Make me feel good. Talk about me. Sing to me. Am I getting fed? Are my needs getting met? After all, that's what they said. You deserve a break today. Live your best life now. Be all that you can be. And it goes contrary to the Scripture, where Scripture says that Jesus came and made himself no reputation emptied himself of his divine privileges and became a servant to the lowest debauched person on the planet so that he might be highly exalted. It's exactly contrary, ladies and gentlemen. It's exactly contrary that Jesus doesn't say come and be fulfilled and get all your needs met and make self feel good, keep self on the throne. He says come and empty yourself, come and die to yourself, Come and get rid of yourself because self will lead you to hell. Can I tell you what? It's counterintuitive. We think if I can feed self and edify self and build up self, somehow I'll be happy. Yet we have a culture that has more money, more leisure time, more contraptions, more amusement, and we are empty and dying and suicidal. What's wrong with our culture? Are you with me this morning? All right, this is my introduction. Let's get into the body of the word now. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Wow. We have a gospel of individual self-improvement and self-esteem. It reigns in most churches. We're talking about a preacher who's a very good preacher, and he, he's positive. He's written a lot of books. I love him. I love to listen to him, but I'm bothered 
not by what he preaches. I'm very disturbed by what he doesn't preach. It's what he leaves out that really causes me to be disturbed. He doesn't tell the other side of the issues that certainly need to be addressed. The gospel of individualism and self-improvement, even though the Bible does not teach self-love or self-esteem or self-worth or self-actualization as a virtue, a vast number of present-day Christians have been deceived by self-teachings of humanistic psychology. Rather than resisting the enticement of the world to become cultural-bound, not only do they not resist the tidal wave of selfism, they are riding the crest of self-esteem, self-acceptance, and self-love. One can hardly tell the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian except that the Christian uses God to be one of the reasons why he wants to seek fulfillment and happiness and self-worth and self-esteem. There's this thing called anthropocentric gospel. Anthro meaning man, centric meaning center, that we have made man the center, the object of Christianity. We teach it in our universities, in our high schools. There was a man called Abraham Maslow, or excuse me, yeah, Maslow. He came up with this hierarchical pyramid of human needs. You may have seen it. I think we have it on the slide, if you'll bring it up. The pyramid, there we are. At the base of that were physiological needs. You need a home. You need a roof over your head. Then there were safety needs. You needed to make sure that when you went to sleep at night, no burglar was going to come in and, and kill your children or rape your wife. Then there was the, the sense of loving and being belong, belonging to a group. Then esteem and finally self-actualization. And can I tell you what? Many sincere Christians have bought this humanistic psychological concept and used it as the base of their preaching. Can I tell you something, ladies and gentlemen? There are some wonderful churches in Atlanta that can do church a lot better than we can. They've got all the bells and whistles. They've got the fancy nursery. They've got a, a praise and worship band that could do, do a Saturday Night Live if they needed to. They've got greeters that smile. They've, they've got false teeth that you would never know, and they're smiling and happy. And, you know, and it's just like you've walked into the happiest place on earth. But when you get in there and you understand that what they're doing will not really satisfy you, that thing that entices us to be comfortable and politically right and be associated with what's cool and trendy, can I tell you what, that is the very antithesis of what Jesus said you're here to do. As much as I love it, and I'm, I'm captivated by it, but there are people who can do church a lot better than we can. They've got better buildings. They've got softer seats. Trust me, they have softer seats. I've been there. They've got, they've, got better, they've got better everything, but can I tell you what? I'm not in it for how comfortable and easy they can make it for me. I'm in it because God put me here. And I didn't leave, uh, let me tell you what, I didn't leave North America 20 years ago because it was easy. I did it because God said do it. And we were living in the lap of, of, of luxury. lived in Brentwood, Tennessee, a 6,000-square-foot home. We had everything, the American dream, and, you know, on the inside we were saying, God, is there something we can do? And God spoke to us. We sold it all, gave a lot of it away. We moved to the other side of the world. Why? Because we're great? No, because we serve a great God. We understand things don't make you happy. Things don't ultimately satisfy you. It's a relationship with God. It's a sold-out life. It's the inverted thing. We invert that triangle and say, 
Jesus, you're the reason, not my self-actualization, not my success, not everything I can get out of life and I can milk out of life. It's what is your will and what makes you happy. That is what I'm living for, God. That's true Christianity. I'm so, I'm so glad the, the original 12 apostles didn't live in our culture. 11 out of 12 were killed for what they believed. They were killed, murdered, martyred. Because they said Jesus rose from the dead, and we will not and cannot recant. They died. We would really find out who loves God in the Atlanta metro area if people came in and said, you're either going to be put in jail or you can renounce Jesus right now. We'd find out real quick who really were serious about this thing called Christianity. There's an empty self syndrome. There is a humanistic gospel that says somehow you can be blessed and have all your selfish desires satisfied and oh by the way add a little Jesus to it and you'll make it I was at UCLA one time and this person came up to me and started talking about well I was actually open air preaching and you make people mad when you start talking about Jesus is the only way and I started said, Jesus is the only way. And they started screaming at me, yelling at me. One girl threw water on me, you know. And I just, I was still preaching and everything. And, <clears throat> and this lady came up to me, and she's a well-intentioned lady. She goes, I'm a Christian too, and I think you're giving Jesus a bad name. You're giving Jesus a, re- a bad rep on the campus. By you getting up here and quoting scriptures to people, just turning people off. And, and I stopped her. I said, well, let me ask you a question. I said, I've been doing this for a while. I said, uh, you've, that sounds like a good message to let your light shine and never talk to anybody. I said, that sounds good. I said, may I ask you a question? How many people have come to know Christ using your method? She got very silent. I said, you know, the last two months I've seen about 25 people get born again from using my method. I think I'll start preaching again. And I remember a story a guy told me. It's like people who want to add Jesus and Christianity to their life. It's like a woman who, a German woman, a true story, German woman came to America and she was a little overweight. She wanted to lose weight back in the 1980s. She was a big woman, German woman. We call her full gospel. She was a big, you know, and she was, she was trying to lose weight and she found out this thing in America called Weight Watchers. So she signed up for the Weight Watchers and Lo and behold, after a month of using Weight Watchers, she had not lost weight. She'd actually gained weight. So she went back to the, <clears throat> to the Weight Watcher, you know, uh, dietitian lady and said, Was ist los? You know, ich bin uh, grossa. I'm getting bigger. And she, she tried to explain to her, what, what's going on? Are you holding to the diet? Yes, I'm eating it. All, all this. And what she didn't know, she had thought that the Weight Watcher diet, she would eat that, add it to her current intake of food, and somehow it would neutralize what she had been eating, and she would lose weight in the process. And the, the dietitian lady said, you have to eliminate all this other stuff. This is all you can eat. You cannot add it to your current intake of food. A lot of people who add Jesus to their sensual culture, to their self-esteem, their self-improvement, their self-actualization. Oh, a little, yeah, a little Jesus, yeah. I want to go to heaven. I want to be forgiven, but it's about me, isn't it? It's the church of selfie. It's the church of 
Be all I can be. It's all about you. And Christian authors write books like that. Be all that you can be. It's all about you. Your best life now. Wow. When Scripture says just the, the opposite, it's counterintuitive. Mm, I'm glad I came today. I needed to hear this. Matthew 16, 24. Let's let Jesus speak for himself, shall we? Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone, say anyone, anyone who wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. You know the biggest problem in your world? It's not your job. It's not your boss. It's not your parents. It's not your teachers. It's not your husband. It's not your wife. It's you, sweetheart. If you want to change the world, don't get out there and run for a political party. Don't get out there and say, I'm going to vote for X, Y, and Z. No, you draw a circle, step in, and say, I, if I, my world's going to change, I have to change. Jesus said, deny yourself. And whoever takes up this cross to follow after me, he will die. Can I tell you what? The cross is not a trendy, in vogue piece of jewelry that dangles around your neck. It was an instrument of death. It was an instrument to eliminate everything that looked like life. He said, unless you take up your cross and follow after me, you'll never have life. You'll never taste life. What would it profit a man or woman if they gained the whole world and lost their soul? If I gave you a billion dollars tomorrow, but you went to hell at the end of your life, it wouldn't profit you. We lived in, in Los Angeles, California. And... <laughs> There was these tours they take you up into Beverly Hills to see all these beautiful mansions in Malibu. It was lovely. And this guy went on. He was a Christian. And the guy was saying, well, this is where Sylvester Stallone lives. This is where, you know, all these stars live. This is where, you know, su such and such lived. And all the people were ooing and aahing at these million-dollar, multimillion-dollar mansions. Finally, a guy in the back raised his hand. And he said, I have a question. He said, sure. He said, what would it profit a man? They gained the whole world and lost their soul. The guy just couldn't answer. So they went back to the terminal. Can I tell you what? That, that question is still being posed today. What if you gained everything that you thought would make you happy? But at the end of the day, it doesn't make you happy. The conclusion is there's something out there that's not of this world that can only make you happy. C.S. Lewis said it. It's the, it's the argument by desire. There's something out there that's not physical. It's not tangible. It's not a new car, a new wife, a new house. It's not a new experience. But there's something out there that can make me happy. And it's not of this world, but uh, uh, must transcend this world. And it's called the relationship with God Almighty, who is the Spirit. We want to serve ourselves in this culture. Jesus wants us to deny ourselves and serve others. We want to exalt ourselves. Jesus wants us to humble ourselves. We want to deify ourselves. Jesus wants us to crucify ourselves. You know, Jesus really doesn't want to hurt your pride. He wants to kill the dumb thing. He wants to totally eradicate it. Scripture says Jesus did nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. I'm going to read one more scripture. Look over to Ecclesiastes, verse 2, beginning in verse 1. 
Ecclesiastes verse two, verse one, beginning in verse one. This is Solomon, the wisest man on the planet at the time. Here's what he said. I mean, he had he had three hundred wives and seven hundred concubines. L- look at me. He was the wisest man on earth. He had three hundred wives and seven hundred mistresses. Can you imagine going Christmas shopping for that bunch? This is a guy who thinks I just need one more. Look what he says. This is a description of what he had accumulated. I said to myself, come now, and I will test you with pleasure. So he enjoyed, and so I enjoyed myself. Behold, it too was futility. I said in laughter, it is madness and pleasure. What does it accomplish? Verse 4. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I plant vineyards for myself. And all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds and waters for myself, from which to irrigate the forest and the growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. I also possessed flocks and herds larger than any who preceded me in all of Jerusalem. I also collected for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. And my heart was pleased because of all the labor which I was rewarded with my labor. Thus I considered all the activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. Here's a guy who did everything that life said you should do, and you'd be happy. He did it. He said at the end of his life, he says, fear God and obey his commandments. That's why we're here. Folks, can I tell you something? This is the nemesis of true Christianity, is letting self rise to the throne and then try to feed that monster. It is an empty pit a voracious dead end that you'll never, ever see the end of. That's why Jesus said, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. Do you realize that I can't sin for you? I can't lust for you? I can't go do something and say I'm doing it for, for Pastor? If I'm doing it, I'm doing it for myself. I have selfish motives, and that's the heart of the problem. We have to go to the very heart. That's why Jesus said it's not by going to church. It's not doing another religious ritualistic religious thing it's about getting to the core of it that's dealing with self this is Christianity if you want to follow after me Jesus said take up your cross follow after me deny yourself and here's the here's the beautiful thing is that when you give up your life you'll find what true life really is life is not in things and happenings it's in a relationship with the one who created you Self needs to be dethroned in some of our lives. A lot of people, you may have grown up religious, you may have heard sermons similar to this, and that's wonderful. Again, it doesn't matter what you've heard. It matters what you do with what you've heard. Remember information without application? Oh, that was a good sermon. I'm not going to do it, but it sure was good. No, that's not what we're after. We're after transformation. We're after conversion. We're after, after people who are living for God, not just on Sunday or Wednesday night or at the Connect Group, but Monday through Saturday, and particularly on Sunday. 
that people are living for God, come hell or high water, that you're the same on Sunday as you are on Monday or Friday, that you're living and you're a light in this world, and that will never happen unless you crucify this thing called self. And some of you need to deal with this old nasty religious devil that's in this area that says, oh, well, I'm not so bad, and I've been baptized, and I shook Pastor Doodad's hand. That does nothing. That does nothing. It's only when you come to the cross and say, God, it's you or me, and I'm dying to self so I can have your life. I'm giving away my life so I can have true life. Yes, I know you love me. Yes, I know you've got a great plan for me, but I'm willing to lay down what I think and what I want to do for what you say that I should be doing. And I don't want to do that because this thing called self really wants to stay alive, but I realize this is the only way to fulfill my life. It's the only way to find true happiness. It's the only way to honor you, God, for the great sacrifice you gave by dying on the cross. Self, you are going to die. I'm not going to play religion anymore. I don't want to play games anymore. I don't want to just, I don't want to go through the motions. I want to be a real Christian who lives for God, whose self has been crucified, and Christ alone lives and walks in me. That's what changes people. It's not a good church service. It's not great music, as wonderful as that is. It's when the truth is apprehended and people embrace it and say, God, make this revelation my revelation. Self is going to die. I'm not going to pamper it anymore in the name of Christianity. I'm not going to coddle it anymore just because it's cool and trendy and it's politically correct. Scripture's clear. This thing's got to go to the altar for me to really have a relationship with God. I can't add Jesus to my life. He's got to become my life. I'm not just going to listen to a few Bible verses. I'm going to devour the scripture, and that's going to be, become my guidebook for life. That is the only way Christianity works. Trust me. I've been doing this for a long time, preached all over the world. You can come to church. You can play games. You can have a Bible big enough to choke a mule. But if you're not living for Jesus with your heart, if self has not been crucified, you are not in the game. Well, my, my, my granddaddy was a preacher at first church over. It doesn't matter. God bless your granddad. He's probably in heaven now. Praying that you'll listen to what I'm saying. But unless you do it, unless you put self on the altar, deny yourself, this game called Christianity is, is, is at a dead end. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Ken, I know this is true. I know it's true. I know it's right. I've lived enough. I've seen enough rubbish. I've seen, I've tried to fulfill this thing called self and it's still empty in fact these symptoms I've had to battle with these same symptoms so I know I'm still dealing with it I'm tired of playing games I don't want to play religion any longer I want to crucify self I want to deny self and I want Jesus to be a master and lord of my life either he's lord of all or he's not lord at all you make the decision you make the choice if you're here today and you're not right with God, if self is still ruling in your life, I didn't ask you if you came to church. I didn't ask you if you were baptized. I'm asking you, who's ruling on the throne of your heart? Who's ruling on the throne of your heart? That's who you're really serving. If you're here today and you say, 
I need to make some changes. I need to make Jesus Christ the center of my life. I need to dethrone self. If that's you, I want you to pray this prayer. You're sitting there, and you're saying, well, I've been in church, I've done this. Let me tell you what, this is the most important decision any person can ever make because it has to do with your eternal destiny. With your heads down, your eyes closed, if you're here and you know that's you, I want you to pray this prayer from your heart. You say, Jesus, I am sorry for trying to exalt myself, trying to pamper and live for myself, trying to be self-actualized when really I need to die to self. If I'm really going to be on mission, I need to deal with this thing called selfishness. Today, I repent and ask you to come in and be Lord and Master of my life. I'm not adding you to my life. You become the center and source of my life. From this day forward, Jesus, I'm going to follow you no matter what you tell me. I may not like it, but I'm still going to do it because you are God and you're Master. Because you died on the cross and you rose from the dead, you deserve my life. And I give you free access and reign to take control of my life and be Lord and God of my life from this day forward. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for blowing away the clouds and the religious debris so I can see truly what I need to do. Thank you for your word. And thank you for your love for me, that you do love me. You do have a wonderful plan for me. And I receive it now as you forgive me and I receive you as God and Lord of my life. With your heads down and your eyes closed all across this auditorium, if you prayed that prayer with me and you're sincere, you really meant it, I want you to raise your hand up high if you prayed that prayer with me. Raise it up high. Yes, raise it up high. Thank you. Raise it up high, please. Raise it up high. Yes, thank you. Those who have their hands raised, only those that have their hands raised, and if you're really sincere about what you prayed, only if you're sincere. If you're not sincere, please don't do what I'm saying. But if you're sincere, I want you right now, those who have their hands raised, I want you to stand to your feet. Stand up. Stand up. Only if you if you meant, meant it. Only if you meant it. Stand up. If you didn't raise your hand but you need to be standing, I want you to stand right now. There's two people right now that you, you prayed in your heart but you didn't raise your hand. I need, you need to stand up right now. This is your moment. Yeah. There's one more person. You need to stand up right now. God loves you. That's it. God loves you. You know a lot about the Bible. You, you can quote scripture, but something's not right in your heart. You know it. It's this thing called self. You've exalted self. You've enthroned self. You've deified self. There's a new king in town. His name is Lord Jesus, and he wants to sit on the throne that's rightfully his. You make the choice. Stand up. Stand up. See, if you can't stand up in here when people are friendly and nice and everyone's for you, you will never stand outside these four walls. Trust me. If you can't stand it here, you'll never make it out there, sweetheart. You will never stand. Father, I thank you for these people who are standing right now. And I ask you to bless the decision they've made. That you will be absolute Lord and master of their life. No more playing games. No more half-stepping. No more religious playing. But Father, that Jesus Christ is Lord and master of their life. And Father, I thank you, you seal this word in their heart, and they'll know that the God of heaven and earth touched me on this Sunday morning, May the 19th, and I will never be the same again because Jesus is absolute Lord and master of my life from this day forward. And God, we give you praise, and we give you glory for it. In Jesus' name.
Amen.